Thank you, Bill. Before we start the teaching, the charter of our ministry is very simple. And I, I mention it everywhere I go because I think it's important for folks to understand the motivation someone like me has for standing up and doing this anywhere I'm called to do it. Uh, we're a nonprofit. We're a non-denominational Christian ministry. We devote ourselves to the preaching and teaching of God's Word and doing it uh, both clearly and boldly in its proper historical and theological context and for the purposes God has ordained to uh, bring the news of the gospel, to convert the unbeliever to the truth of the gospel, and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And we do that through a teaching of God's Word in a methodical verse-by-verse way, and that's where we get our name. So today we don't have time to get through a whole book, but that's always my preference. Today we'll just be in one book, and just one chapter of one book. We're going to be in uh, the book of Exodus. And as I was considering what I might teach on this morning, I wanted to make sure I found a passage of Scripture that truly taught on a uniquely male issue. I knew this was a men's breakfast. I knew we wouldn't have any women in the room. I thought, well, there must be some topic, some opportunity in Scripture that would be uniquely appropriate for men. And as I pondered that, God brought to mind uh, the natural, logical topic to address to any group made up only of men, and that is circumcision. (laughs) And actually, we aren't going to teach on circumcision, so don't get too nervous. Everybody starts squirming in their seat at about this point. Uh, But it does come up in the teaching today in Exodus. Uh, In fact, the real point of today's story, we're going to look at a story in Moses' life out of Exodus chapter 4, goes far beyond just the practice of circumcision. Really, the message today addresses both the calling and the equipping of men in ministry. I'm going to open just in a brief prayer over the Word, and then we will start the study. Dear Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would teach this morning that the words of a man would not be the words that we receive, but the words of you through your Spirit. Father, we ask that as we uh, devote ourselves to understand the Word, that you would give us a conviction and a sincerity of heart to live it out. And Father, we uh, thank you as well for the opportunity to gather with men of like mind and spirit so that they may work with you uh, around us to call us into a life of obedience. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's read the first nine verses of Exodus chapter 4. It begins, Then said Moses, What if they will not believe me, or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And then he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of, the, of, of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. And so he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. We'll end there just for the moment. 
I'm sure most of you, many of you are probably very familiar with the story of Moses. This is obviously one we've heard many times. I mean, after all, if you haven't read the biblical account, I'm sure we've all seen Charlton and Heston stand on the mountain with the tablets. You know, the movie comes on most every Easter. But just in case there's someone in here that may not be familiar with all the details, I'm just going to provide you a few moments of background for where we are here in chapter 4 of Exodus. This scene actually begins back in chapter 3. This is the moment when Moses is standing on Mount Horeb and God has first appeared to him in the burning bush. So he's still in that moment as we enter into chapter 4. And in this time, as God's presenting himself to Moses and calling him to go serve him in Egypt, we hear Moses called in this remarkable way and yet we see Moses hesitating in response to that call. Clearly Moses has some concerns about this call. He's full of doubt. And in the course of this chapter, chapter 4, God is going to contend with three barriers or three obstacles or three objections that Moses is going to pose for why he can't serve God, for why he's not able to do it. And as we study these three barriers this morning, I'm asking you to take time with me as men in the Lord to consider whether these barriers are present in our lives, whether we have fallen back, perhaps, on some of these same excuses for where God is calling us to serve in ministry. The first barrier comes very quickly in the text. It's verse 1. The question Moses poses to God in that verse, he says, what if they don't believe me? Now, I want you to notice something interesting at this point, because as you study this account, it's fascinating what Moses clings to for his objections, because God has told Moses in the preceding chapter that he is going to be sent to Egypt to free his people, He's going to confront Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not going to want to let his people go. There's going to be a fight. There's going to be curses. There's going to be a very, very difficult struggle to get his people free. God has laid this out for Moses already. And as God has said all of this to Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. I'm going to have to do all these things. What do you think Moses' first concern would be? Naturally, right, Moses' first concern in answering God's call to take on this ministry is going to be, Pharaoh won't listen to me. But that's not what his first thought was. That's not what he just said. Look at the text. He said, they won't listen to me. His concern is that his own people, the Jewish people, are not going to receive him as God's messenger. That they are not going to be willing to follow him, to agree that he is there to liberate them. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that he is worried more about the Jewish people, at least initially, than he is about the Pharaoh and the Egyptian people? It's a fascinating thing for me to look at that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of surprising that he didn't raise the Egyptian issue, though he will get to it. But in a way, it makes sense. In a way, this does make sense, because Moses already knows the Egyptians are going to fight him. That's already been given to him by God's own word. So the answer to, are they going to object when speaking of the Egyptians? The answer is, well, yeah. Yeah, they're going to object. So his concern then goes to the Jewish people. To put it in my own words, this is what he asked God. He said, God, what if no one accepts me as your representative? What if they don't agree that I have your power behind me? And isn't that the way we often feel? Ministry would be so easy if it weren't for all the people. I've often heard that said. Now Moses' doubt in this moment is one that I think every godly man faces sooner or later in their own pursuit of ministry. In fact, let's acknowledge something right up front among men. God calls every man to serve in ministry. Every man. And I believe God is calling every man in this room to serve in ministry. Paul says we are to present our bodies as a living 
and holy sacrifice acceptable to God because that is our spiritual act of worship or service to God. In other words, we are not saved, gentlemen, for our own sake. God did not look down on earth and say, heaven won't be heaven without Steve. God doesn't need us. He is not saving us so that we can get something out of the process. He saved us for his glory. So it is obviously the case then that we have some required, expected response in our life that glorifies him. We are all called into ministry. Now sadly, I often meet men who have come to equate the concept of ministry with a professional career or professional calling. Now they are compatible, the scriptures say for the most part, that it is an expectation that men who make their living presenting the gospel should see their compensation come from that work. That's a biblical concept. It's a perfectly valid one. But it is not a necessary one. It is not an obligation. It's not a requirement that those in ministry be professionally paid to do that work. In other words, it doesn't excuse the rest of us. The Bible is clear. Pastors are not in ministry. Evangelists are not in ministry. Worship singers, musicians, Bible teachers, counselors, anyone who is an official representative of a corporate church, they're not in ministry. They're simply one of the body of Christ doing their personal ministry. And they happen to be paid for it, perhaps. The rest of us, those normal men, I love the way it's kind of the laity and then the professional ministry. It's really not that way in the Bible. No, there's no such thing as normal men who are not in ministry. We all, gentlemen, have ministry. Every single one of us. Paul puts it this way in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 11. He says, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And then look what he says the reason for some of us having those roles are. For the equipping of the saints. In other words, for the equipping of everyone else, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The word for service there in the Greek, diakonia, it literally means ministry. Service, ministry. In fact, that's the definition of the word ministry, to serve. So when Paul says in chapter 4, verse 12 of Ephesians that the, the, those other positions exist to equip the saints for the work of service, you could substitute the word ministry. It's a synonymous term. So gentlemen, the reason we have pastors, the reason we have men in counseling positions or teaching positions is not so that they can do ministry. <laughs> the irony is it's exactly the opposite. They exist so that we will do ministry. Ministry, service to God in our everyday life. Those leaders use their gifts and their time to prepare everyone else in the body for the work of ministry. But when we receive the call in our life, and a call does not mean to go to the other side of the world, though it could be that. The call may be how you live your life in your own home. It could be the way you live your life at school or at work. When we receive that call... I have gifted you, I have appointed you, here's the work I have for you. Our first thought might actually be very similar to Moses's, and maybe we never realized it. I think in many cases, we think like Moses, we turn to God in our hearts and we say, God, who would receive me? Who in God's people, among the people, would ever look to me and say, you know, Steve, you have something I think is worth listening to or or hearing. Steve, you have something that actually could be a benefit to me, that you could serve me in ministry. Who would ever think that I could serve in God's name? Well, you know what the true answer to that question is? No one. No one's going to receive me, nor should they. So why am I here? Why would I have anything to offer? God didn't say, oh, come on now, Moses, why wouldn't they accept you? I mean, you're so smart. You're so handsome. I mean, you look just like Charlton Heston. You know, you're going to be an easy sell when you get in there. They're going to love you. Don't worry about it. You've been trained in the Pharaoh's courts, so you're ready. 
He doesn't say, you went to the best seminary, you had the best professors, you've written all those books, you've got the degrees, you're ready to go, they'll accept you. But you know, that's what men do. Inappropriately so, we tend to look at somebody's pedigree to decide, can they offer us anything in ministry? Moses couldn't have met that test. No, God didn't say that. God told Moses, I will validate your ministry. And look how he said he's going to do it. First in verse 2, he says, I want you to take your staff. He does the whole snake thing, very famous scene out of the movie. We all know it very well. But what he really says in that little experience is, I will prove your calling by the work of your hands. By what you can do in your hands, how I appoint your hands and your body to work, I will appoint you to do things that validate your ministry by the work of your hands. And then in verse 6, he does the hand in the, in, in the bosom thing, comes out white, goes back in, comes out normal. In other words, I believe he's saying, I will approve, I will validate your calling in your own body. I will make your life a living sacrifice to me. People will know me by looking at you and your life, by the way your life has become a mirror of mine. Finally, in verse 9, God tells Moses he's going to turn the Nile into blood if it comes to it. In other words, I'm going to validate your authority, I'm going to validate your calling by the results of your ministry, by the fruit of what it is you do. So look at those three principles in our own lives today. By the work you do, by the effort, by the kinds of effect you have on people. Number two, by the way you live your own personal life, by who you are as a representative of Christ in your own life. And then finally, what is the fruit of that? What is the output? How does that come to bear in the lives of others? If I see in those three things the work of the Holy Spirit in the things you're able to do by your gifting in spiritual terms, by the kind of life you've chosen to lead and the discipline of the flesh and the way you have given yourself over to the Spirit and the way you walk. And then if I can look at your some effect in ministry, the kind of people that you have influenced and the way you have brought them to know the Lord or the way you brought them to be discipled, if I look at that, I'll see God. Or I won't. And in that I'll know. And I'll validate your ministry. And God says, I'm prepared to do that with you, Moses, so don't worry about what you can do. Just worry about what I can do. And I'll take you through this the right way. Romans 11:29 says, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It doesn't change his mind. So if you've been gifted, you've been called. And if you've been called, you have a ministry to do. Now it's just a matter of, are you doing it? So you can't point to your lack of qualifications as an excuse for not serving God's people. I'll give you another quick example. The prophet Amos. I don't know if you read that book. It's a fascinating little book. Amos was a sheep herder. Okay, this is a guy who made his living raising sheep in the southern kingdom of Judah. And one day he gets a call from God to go to the northern kingdom, which was an enemy of the southern kingdom at this point, and prophesy against King Jeroboam, who was an evil king in the northern kingdom. And Amos shows up as a nobody, a sheep herder. No professional background in ministry. No rabbinical training and starts to prophesy against the king of the kingdom. And when he's been called out by the, uh, for that by the priests of the northern kingdom and told, you're a nobody, we don't want to listen to you, look what Amos says in response to that. I'll read you two verses, Amos seven fourteen. Amos replied, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I'm a herdsman, a grower of sycamore figs. And then he says, but the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. I love that. I'm not here because I'm special. I'm here because God called me. That's all that matters. So, gentlemen, we may not be prophets, we may not be apostles or whatever, but like Amos, the Lord has saved us, set us on a path to serve in ministry. That's our calling. What about the lack of ability? 
You know, certainly that's going to be a good reason not to serve, right? I just can't do it. I don't know how to do it. Moses had that concern. Look at verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past. I love that. He's, he's kind of saying, I'm not a very good speaker, and it's not like it's gotten any better. He says, And nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Verse 11, The Lord said to him, Well, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the messenger by whomever you will. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And he said, Is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him... And to put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he will speak to you, to speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. So Moses' hesitation to answer God's call here hasn't lessened, it's still there, and his objections now move from authority to ability. Now it's a concern about what he can do in his own ability. Now his concern here turns to Pharaoh and the possibility that Moses doesn't have the physical skills to be a messenger to that kind of an audience. And he tells them that if God really needs someone to be eloquent, you know, you really need to go elsewhere. You need to look for somebody else if your job involves public speaking, someone who could actually do the job. Moses, I love, describes himself here as slow of speech, slow of tongue. Actually, when he says, I'm not eloquent, literally in the Hebrew it means, I'm not a man of speech. And then when he says, I am slow of speech, the the literal in the Hebrew is, I have a heavy mouth. So if you've ever been taught that maybe he stuttered, I've heard this in times past, that maybe the problem was he had a speech impediment, you can't rule that out. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I mean, I don't think he's trying to make that point. I think he's just trying to make the point that you and I make all the time. In other words, I don't want you to get the impression that he's somehow different from you and I. That if you had been there, if I had been there, we wouldn't have made this objection because we don't stutter. That's not the issue at all, gentlemen. He's saying the same thing you and I say. It's the natural doubt. It's not the unnatural doubt. It's not the odd objection. It's the everyday objection. It's the same thing that happens when you turn to somebody in this church, for example, and say, I need someone to watch the children. Oh, I'm not good with kids. What? What do you like? What, you drown them? You throw them out windows? What do you mean you're not good with them? I mean, can you watch them for 30 minutes? It's not that complicated. That's what you want to say, right? We don't say that. We're loving people. You know, I need someone to help with the men's ministry. Oh, I really wouldn't know what to do. How about just clean up? Can you do that? You see my point, right? That we always have this sense that I can't do what you need me to do, sometimes just out of laziness, but in other cases genuinely because we're afraid we won't be able to do a good job. That's a natural response. I think that's what Moses' concern is here. He's worried that his abilities are not up to the immensity of the task that God has laid before him. And do you know what? Just like the first question, Moses is right. He's right. He doesn't have what it takes. He is hopeless. He is not even close to where he needs to be. If his thought is, I'm going to come in and woo the Pharaoh and get what I want through my words, yeah, he's right. He's going to be a miserable failure. He doesn't have what it takes. None of us do. But God does. God does. Look at God's response in verse 11. He gives him two ways that he's going to make this work. 
that two ways he's going to make Moses' ability equal to the task. First, he reminds Moses, who made your mouth? Is this a trick question? (laughs) You did, right, God? Yes, you. When he says, is it not I the Lord, he's making a point broader than just the mouth or speech. He's saying our ability to do anything of value in our own bodies is completely dependent on God working through us. Because he is the one who crafted us for a purpose, it is self-evidently the case that through us, God can do anything he wants, because we are his tool. So it is not only the case that when we speak before a king, as Moses is being called to do, but when we speak to our kids in the quiet of the evening in their bedrooms, if we accomplish any lasting good spiritually in either of those cases, you give God the credit. Because it had to be through him that that was made possible, and it was through him that the work was done. It's easy to take credit when it's a small job. It's when the big jobs come that we get nice and humble and say, oh, God did that work. But we're ready to take credit when it's small, aren't we? You've got to be careful with that, because small becomes big before you know it. What we have to remember is God always does the work. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says it best. He says, the mind of the man plans his way, but God is the one who directs his steps. We're always thinking we're in control. We're never really in control. Secondly, God says to Moses, I'm going to raise up others. In the case of Moses, it was Aaron. But I'm going to raise up others to provide you with necessary support. In other words, you're not in this alone. It's not about you, Moses. You know, stop thinking you've got to go into Pharaoh's courts and do this by yourself. I understand you have some difficulty in the area of speech. And look at this. I just happen to give you a brother who's very good at speaking. Isn't that a coincidence? No, it's not a coincidence. It was always in God's plan that there would be a brother ready to help. So he says, I have given you all you need. When you consider what God is telling Moses here, it has to be, I think, one of the most humbling and yet empowering truths of Scripture. No matter how much I study, no matter how much I practice, no matter how much I prepare for things like this, if I do anything of value in this moment, it is merely God doing the work through me. It is not my practice. It is not my preparation. It is not my knowledge. Though God still demands that I devote myself to the developing of those skills to his glory, in the end, it was not my effort that resulted in the outcome. It was always him. It was him helping me practice. It was him helping me prepare. It was him giving me the knowledge. And therefore, it is him speaking through me if there is any good to come. It's all him. The principle is simple. The one God calls, he will equip. I've never seen it yet that God would call a man into ministry and not equip him to meet the needs of that ministry. But I have seen him call a man into ministry and they not step forward into that ministry. And in that case, God is perfectly content to withhold the equipping because it's evident it's not being put to use. They go hand in hand. Since my time is short here, I'm going to move to the final lesson God teaches Moses in this chapter. It's where we get to circumcision, in case you're wondering. Chapter 4, verse 18. Moses departed, we're told, and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. 
So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, as I opened today, I said we were going to look at three issues or three barriers in Moses' life that would serve to inhibit his stepping out into the ministry God had called him to. Remember, the first was that Moses doubted that his calling would be acceptable to the people. And then the second was that Moses had doubts concerning his ability to actually answer that call and do the work. But now we're looking at a whole new issue, something entirely different than those first two. This is an issue of obedience and devotion to God's call. In verse 19, God tells Moses, it's time for you to go back to Egypt, the time has come, and all your adversaries there have died so you can return. And Moses then takes part in this movement now back to Egypt. And then in verse 24, we reach one of the most, I would argue, one of the most enigmatic passages in Scripture. There's a ton of ink spilled on the pages of commentators of one kind or another trying to explain what's going on here at the end of this chapter. And the passage is difficult because of a unique feature in Hebrew grammar. Hebrew, you may know, does not have pronouns. So they don't have him or he or she or anything like that. So when they don't give the proper name of somebody in the text... It is by context, it is by implication, that you understand who it's talking about. So when there's no subject or object mentioned, we are left trying to guess, to some extent, who the verse is talking about. And in this case, here's what we learn. We hear that the Lord has met him and sought to put him to death. But in the Hebrew, it literally reads, the Lord encountered and sought to take life. That's the most literal way to translate the Hebrew words that are being used here. So we know Moses is traveling, we know he's with his wife, Zipporah, a woman that he married while he was in Midian. And now we'll know from other verses in Exodus that he has two sons. So at this point he's traveling with Zipporah and his two sons. Now it appears as they come to this point in their travel that God has met them in an angry way, somehow making known, making manifest that he's unhappy. And it's because at least one of these two boys has not been circumcised. All Jews, you may know, were bound by the covenant given to Abraham to be circumcised at the eighth day. And it comes from Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. Let me just read you two verses, because it's interesting what the specific requirement was. He said, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Then if you skip a couple verses to verse 14 of chapter 17, God says this, But an uncircumcised male, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The word there for cut off in the Hebrew, it it can mean several things. It literally means cut, but it can also mean destroyed, as in killed. And I believe that that is the meaning here, that the one who would not be circumcised is to be put to death. So when God confronts Moses here, he's angered, we're told, because Moses has not obeyed the commandment to circumcise his son. Many say, as you look at the text here, that it was Moses himself who was in danger of being killed. Because again, we can't tell for sure in the Hebrew. We don't have a name. But I tend to favor that it was actually the son and his life that was in jeopardy. And I say that because of two things. First, because the penalty of death as given in Genesis chapter 17 was to the one who wasn't circumcised. 
That was the penalty for being uncircumcised. It was that that person would be cut off. That would seem to indicate that the son's life would be the one God would be taking for this penalty. But secondly, in the earlier verses we read today out of Exodus, I find it very interesting that God had just finished telling Moses what he was going to have to tell Pharaoh when he gets to Egypt. He's given Moses a little preview of what's coming, of the plan. And it's interesting what he chose to give Moses a picture of. He didn't talk about all the other plagues. He didn't talk about the the process leading up to the plagues. He focused down to the last one. And he gave Moses this little heads up. He tells him the firstborn child of Pharaoh is going to be cut off, is going to be killed, because of Pharaoh's disobedience to my word. And now we find Moses confronted by God shortly thereafter for disobedience to God's word. Now, it makes sense to me then that the penalty would be a comparable, similar kind of message to Moses. Your firstborn may very well, or one of your children, if it not be the firstborn, one of your sons is in penalty now for that disobedience. Now, I can't prove that it was Moses' son. I don't think that's even that important, frankly. What's important is that Moses at this point is in jeopardy for disobedience to to God's word, for failing to obey God's commandment. Here's what I think happened. Moses' wife, Zipporah, she's not a Jewish woman. He married her in Midian. Moses had met her when he was, uh, had run away from Pharaoh and from the Egyptians in what is now present-day Saudi Arabia. And this woman knew nothing of the practice of circumcision. That's a uniquely Jewish practice uh, in that time, and in, even today, in many ways, it's a Jewish or Christian practice for the most part. Perhaps Moses had told her about this practice at the point when their first son was born, and she said, circumcision? What's that? I don't care. Do whatever you want. And so Moses carries out circumcision on the first son. Then after that first experience, she sees this bloody affair and she decides it's barbaric and she says, I don't want to have any part of this. The second son comes along and she says, oh, no, 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 no. We're not doing that again. I'm not letting you have that opportunity on my second son. So here's a man appointed to lead God's people, the nation of Israel, out of captivity to represent them and to represent God before Pharaoh. He's a man who's supposed to come and demand Pharaoh's obedience, and ultimately to demand the nation of Israel's obedience to the covenant. What do you think it would mean if this man had not even commanded obedience within his own household to God's word? I think it's best reflected in Paul's expression in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, when he's talking about qualifications for elders in the church. He says, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? That's a convicting message to any man, but here's the bottom line, guys. If we don't have enough conviction, if we don't have enough certainty about God's expectations and commands, if we're not willing to exercise leadership among those closest to us, how much confidence do we have in him to apply that to people who don't live in his own home, who are under his charge in the church? It's a simple concept, a very sensible concept. I think God applied that here to Moses. I think he showed up and he said, Moses, if you will advocate your responsibility in your own home to your wife in this case, to make the wrong choices, given what you know I've commanded, then I'm not going to see you as a suitable representative. In other words, this ministry and this calling that I've placed on you is conditional on your own personal obedience to that calling and to my word in general. That's a qualification. That's a pre-qualification. What's most troubling, I think, about this whole situation as we see it play out in Exodus is that at the point where God appears and makes this clear to Moses, who solves the problem? It's not Moses. Zipporah knowing that perhaps her child was in jeopardy, takes it upon herself to perform this circumcision, and then in anger, it appears, throws this foreskin at Moses. 
That's sort of implied in the text. You can't be sure exactly what she did. The word for through in my Bible is actually touch in the Hebrew. But it could have been still that she tossed it. And whatever it is, I think it's a sign of her discontent, her anger, that she had to go through with this practice that she didn't agree with. I think Moses was brought here to this point because it's not enough that he heard God's call. It's not enough that he trusted in God's power for his authority. It's not enough that he would trust in God for his ability. Those things are important, gentlemen. We have to understand God validates our ministry. We have to understand it's his power in us that gives us any hope to do the right things. Yes, but that's not enough. It's not enough. We have to conform our own life to God's commandments before he is going to be able to use us in a a mighty way. I want you to consider the irony as we close. Consider the irony as Moses walked into Egypt if his son had still been uncircumcised. And he had shown up to the Pharaoh and demanded that Pharaoh be obedient to God's commandment. And then even worse, had gone to the Jewish people who understood circumcision and commanded them to obey him. And then somewhere down the road, somebody says, hey, your son's not circumcised. What's up with that? They wouldn't have said that. That's sort of what we would say, right? They don't use that term in the Bible. But that's how it would have come across. Put yourselves in a more modern-day circumstance where God has called you to ministry, and he has, and he has equipped you for ministry, and he has, and he gives you an opportunity in ministry, as I'm sure he has or will, and you step into that, and yet your own life isn't obeying even some of the most basic expectations of the word. In Moses' case, it was circumcision. In our case, it will be different expectations. But whatever those are, if we are walking outside God's counsel and will in those things, whatever good we were prepared to do, whatever we had the ability to do, whatever we were equipped to do, it will crumble because those who might have listened won't. And those who might have followed won't. And nor should they. Nor should they. Where are you in your readiness to serve God in ministry? As Christian brothers, you know, we've all been saved. We've all been saved to serve the Lord. We've all had a calling, I believe, and we've all been given an opportunity through God's power in us to do it. But our ministries begin, yes, in the home, but they go everywhere we go. They go to work, they go to the campus, they go to the ball field, they go wherever. So you're in ministry as you live and breathe. You're in ministry wherever you go. You're the God's representative. You're Christ on earth. You're the body of the Lord today. And you've got all this behind you. Now the question is, what are you doing with it? I'm not saying full-time ministry, though he may call you to that. I guess maybe I'm asking you, have you designed your everyday life with the mindset that says, I am serving the Lord, not myself. And I am doing what he's called me to do. I am the Moses who leaves Midian and walks to Pharaoh and confronts the tough things God's called me to confront in his power and with his calling behind me. Am I doing those things? Or do I attend church and I attend the Bible study, and I attend the men's breakfast. Good things, but is that what he's calling you to do, or are those the equipping ministries that are supposed to propel you into what it is you do? I would argue it's the latter. And I would challenge each of us this morning as we close in prayer to ask that question of God, the toughest question of all. Are we hampered because of our excuses? Are we hampered because we're not obedient? Have we really given ourselves over to that call? as men should. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we finish. Father, if we open your word and we approach it with the Holy Spirit, then we know, Father, it will do a work. And so often, Father, that work begins with a conviction. As well, we hope, with an encouragement, but certainly, Father, it is the case that your word is designed to cut away the things that are not holy and replace them, Father, with a holy lifestyle. And we know 
that that is a painful process at times, but is also joyful, Father, for when that process is finished, we know the peace of righteousness as you tell us in your word. And we ask, Father, that as we've studied your word today and seen Moses and his walk and how he objected and how he felt challenged to take on the ministry you gave him, that we would be encouraged that you could take a man like him and do such mighty work, knowing all that came from that man's obedience over his lifetime, how much you used him. That should encourage us, Father, to know what is possible in our own lives if we are willing to obey in the same way. So we pray, Father, you would make clear to us that we have been called to serve you. And make clear to us, Father, that we have been equipped so that we would have confidence to do the work you've given us. And then finally, Father, we pray that we would have the discipline in our life to walk according to your commandments so that we may not be disqualified in the work you've given us. And then in all these things, Father, can we bring you glory? Lord, would you give us an opportunity, please, to be useful in that way, that the world might come to know you fully through us, and that those you put in our charge, wherever we may go, would see you reflected in our work. We pray for those opportunities. Lord, thank you for the men today who served. Thank you, Father, for the men who attended. Thank you for the opportunity of fellowship together and in study of your word. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.